Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin shared his team's strategy for introducing at trial material from Robert Durst's trial for the murder of Morris Black in Galveston, Texas. In this episode, he continues his explanation of his team's strategy for the Galveston material, focusing on Robert Durst's perjurious testimony from that trial. Lewin also explains a bizarre development during the investigation with respect to Bob Durst's friend, Susie Giordano. That's all coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. As we mentioned previously, in the event you would like to revisit the Galveston section of the trial that Lewin describes in this episode, check out Season 2, Episode 10 of this Jury Duty podcast. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. The next question that I wanted to ask you before we get to Bob's testimony in Galveston is about the actual presentation of the transcript testimony from Galveston and your use of people to read it. Is that something you commonly do? Well, you have to have somebody read. When you're going to have prior testimony, you have to get a reader. And so we, we wanted, we needed readers. I didn't care who read it. You know, it's very funny. Like people will I want X person to read it, et cetera. It doesn't matter. It says what it says, and the point was to get it out there. So basically, we were using different law clerks. It was too difficult to have DAs do it, and we didn't have DAs to spare, and we didn't want people on our team having to do it if we didn't have to. So we used an array of law clerks. Got it. All right, so tell me about Bob Durst's testimony in Galveston and the way you use that in the case. So we knew from the start that Bob had repeatedly perjured himself in Galveston. We also knew that we could prove it 20 different ways that he had perjured himself. So in other words, we had him saying A at one point under oath and B at another point under oath. Then we had him saying C in prior statements, and we knew from the opening that he was going to have to testify and say D, and all these things were inconsistent with each other. So we needed to get that testimony in. 
we control that testimony. So the way it works is that that is a statement from Bob Durst. The defense cannot bring it in. Only we can bring it in. And there's a misnomer. There's an evidence code section called Evidence Code Section 356. Most lawyers, and unfortunately a lot of judges, Wyndham is not among them, because he's a sharp guy who knows the evidence code. But there's a misnomer, and it goes like this. If one side introduces part of a statement, the rest of the statement comes in. So the idea would be, well, if you admit any of Bob's testimony, all the rest of it comes in. Completely untrue. The rule is very simple. It's always subject to 352, no matter what. But in addition, let's say that I'm admitting a huge statement from Bob Durst, which is his testimony, right? And let's say that I don't want to put anything in about Morris's alleged violence, okay, even though Bob testified to that. Under 356, the defense can introduce other parts of the statement that are necessary to put the part that's been admitted into context. So what does that really mean? So let's say that I admit a part of Bob's statement where he says, I never went to see Susan Berman, okay? Let's say there's another part of that same testimony where Bob had said, you know what, I'm not sure I might have gone and seen Susan Berman. Well, the defense would have every right to say, hey, listen, you kept out the part of his testimony where he clarified the part you came in that you let in, and therefore it's misleading. So it would come in. What it doesn't allow you to do is say, hey, listen, you let in his statement. You didn't talk anything about Morris Black's violence, but I want to bring it in. Well, you can't. It doesn't come in under 356. You can't do it 100%. Even if somehow it did come in under 356, I would argue that under 352, it's substantially more prejudiced than probative. Finally, even if it was going to come in, it would only come in after Bob Durst has testified in this trial in a manner that would raise self-defense and that would make this evidence admissible. So we knew all this going in. So we edited the testimony accordingly. And we gave the defense the testimony, even though we didn't have to. So I want to make clear, this is not a conditional examination where both sides have to stipulate. We get to bring it in. Now, competent good lawyers are going to basically file a motion saying, hey, we don't want his testimony in. They're going to come up with whatever they can. And we want to litigate line by line what they are planning on putting in. Of course, they don't do that. We ended up giving them the testimony in advance because we knew that they weren't going to do anything with it anyway. And if we didn't, they would argue, your honor, they're just giving this to us now. We had no idea, you know, it shouldn't come in, we want to delay, et cetera. So we gave them the testimony. We filed years ago a motion on 356 saying exactly what I just told you, that they only can bring in parts of a statement that makes the part that we brought in understandable. So that's what we did. We edited the statement, we put it on, and during the statement, there were times where the defense wanted to bring in, we would skip large chunks where Bob is talking about how violent Morris was, and we won. We'd go back into chambers, and we, or even if and jury would leave, and we'd say, listen, it's not relevant. Self-defense isn't relevant. Even if, Your Honor, you later find it to be relevant, that can only be after Bob Durst testifies. And if so, the defense can litigate it then, and we'll bring it in. That was the same issue, if you remember, that ultimately happened with the elevator operators and the doorman. We litigated 25 times, 
And finally, the judge ended up saying, hey, listen, prosecution's right. If Bob Durst is going to testify that I had no reason to flee because I knew about these doormen, then the doormen stuff could have come in not for the truth of the matter asserted, but to explain Bob's conduct. The judge said, okay, you know, we'll see what happens when Bob testifies. And when Bob testified, he said exactly what we said he would say, which is, I was fleeing because I was about to be charged with Jeanine Pirro. That made the whole doorman stuff still irrelevant. So same issue. So we ended up editing Bob's testimony to get in what we needed. Now, we decided that it didn't really matter. We were going to let as much of it in as possible in the interest of fairness because we didn't care about the extraneous shit, and we knew that there were 50 different areas of perjury that we were going to be able to catch him on. So that was how we did it, and that's what happened. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In the next part of our conversation, I ask Lewin to enumerate the key perjurious statements by Robert Durst in his Galveston testimony. What were the most important pieces of perjury that you got before the jury in this case? Oh, God, where do you even start? I mean, well, so for one, Bob was insistent in his testimony that he had gone to San Francisco, to Eureka, he never mentioned anything about taking care of a sick friend. He never mentioned Diana Boucher's name at all. He was adamant that he never went down to Los Angeles under oath. Well, we knew that that's perjury because he's now stipulated he wrote the letter, the cadaver note. So that was hugely important. I also knew that in Galveston, he had testified that he had found the bow saw in Morris's closet. But I also knew that in the BD story, he had said he had bought it at Chalmers. And I knew that the reason he had done that was because he'd written the BD story before trial, did not realize that they were going to call the manager who was going to be able to say that basically there's no way Bob bought the bow saw there, had to come up with more crap. I also knew that he had told that crazy story. He had to explain why he had a brand-new bow saw in the car almost two weeks after Morris was murdered and dismembered. John, can you go back? Bob said in Texas that he found the saw in Morris's closet, and you brought in the manager to testify to what? The manager testified that Bob did not buy the saw. So that's consistent with his testimony in Galveston. The problem was Bob did not realize that in the BD story, he had written that he had bought the saw at Chalmers. I don't even think he realized it when we introduced the BD story. Some of the fun that we had in this case was we would admit evidence that we knew impeached the defendant either at the time we admitted it or shortly thereafter, and the defense did not know the case well enough to even realize what we had. There were moments when even jurors realized that Bob was impeached and his own lawyers didn't. And Bob told so many lies, he doesn't remember. But there are two different both sides. 
in the case. There's a bow saw that was used to dismember Morris that was dumped. We found the packaging in the water. We never found the actual bow saw. And then there is the brand new bow saw that's in the back of the Honda two weeks later. Now the problem for Bob is, why would you have a second bow saw? Bob knew it, so he had come up with this crazy story in Galveston. If you remember, he's driving and he wants to get rid of his, of the CRV. So he drives off a road and he's going to leave it on this road, but there's a tree blocking it. So he decides to drive all the way to New Orleans to buy a bow saw so he can go back and saw the tree. However, once he buys the bow saw, he changes his mind and never does that. I mean, that's patently absurd. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. It's, it's, it's like a four-year-old would come with a lie that's stupid. So, yeah, they just kept coming. I mean, you know, it's pretty hard. You know, you're basically saying, hey, give me the high points of all Bob Durr's lies. Why, why do you think he bought the second bow saw? Well, I'll tell you why he bought the second bow saw. Because he was planning on committing another murder, either Douglas or Gilberta or both of them. In these cases, what I always say to jurors, whether it's circumstantial or it's different lies, on a circumstantial case like this, I might have a hundred pieces of circumstantial evidence. I might think piece five is overwhelming. Three jurors might agree with me. Three jurors might think piece five doesn't mean that much. They love piece nine. I'm like, piece nine? That doesn't mean a whole lot. So what I've learned is, is that get all the stuff out there that you think is important. Focus on the stuff that you really think is important. And if there's something that the jurors themselves think is more important than you do, don't worry, they'll remember it. So I couldn't tell you. I've told you uh, when you're talking about specifics, I mean, there's so many. There's so many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. know. But by your own standard, have you already told me the key, what you think were the key pieces well, of perjury well, from Galveston? Yeah, well, well, no, the last key piece of perjury was Bob's version of how the shooting happened. Okay, and I want to back up. His, first of all, his statements about, you know, going shooting with Morris and, you know, Morris being dirty, hairy, all that was complete bullshit. I've carried a firearm for many, many years, and anyone who has any experience with firearms, I'm a competent shooter. That's it. I'm not a big firearms enthusiast. I'm competent. I can hit what I shoot at from a distance where I would need to use it. Bob, he has at least as much knowledge about firearms as I do and probably was a better shooter than I am. And his version of going shooting with Morris and Dirty Harry and, and then getting Morris a 22 target pistol with a hair trigger, it's absurd. It's, it's laughably absurd. That was crap. We knew it was crap. Then he was also impeached. We knew that his version of how the actual shooting happened did not match up with the physical evidence that we were going to get from Tom Bevel. Now, we had already given the defense Bevel's report. I don't think they even had an idea. But we knew that we were going to be able to impeach him. So, obviously, that was hugely important. Finally, we knew that Bob had lied repeatedly about, you know, what had happened to Morris's head. We knew the evidence that we had. We knew we were going to be able to prove that Bob had gone back, retrieved the head, put it in the car, taken it, taken the blanket to New Orleans, dumped the head on the way. We knew about the tears in the bag, all the tears. We knew that no uh, sea creature could have done it. So, yeah, so those are a few of them. I'm sure there are more. You could do the, you know, an anthology, 30 hours on, you know, Bob Durst's lies. 
and that would only right. scratch the surface. There's no criminal defendant I'm aware of who's lied so many times about so many things. You know, he's in his own, you know, he does he's several standard deviations about everybody else. You know, he's an outlier. Well, and that's partly a factor of, I'm not sure any defendant has testified for as many days between Galveston and L.A. as Bob has on the stand. It gave him well, ample opportunity to lie. Well, 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 that's just the actual perjury. You also have the 20 hours of statements to Jarecki and Smirling, the three hours to me, and the various statements he's made to other people, including the media. So, yeah, we are loaded for bear. Next, I ask Lewin to explain a bizarre development that resulted in Robert Durst's close friend Susie Giordano turning over a trove of the defendant's personal documents to a New York State investigator. When Lewin refers to Andrew and Mark, he means Jinx filmmakers Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling. When he refers to Chip, he means Durst defense attorney Chip Lewis. And when he speaks about Joey Becerra, he means New York State criminal investigator Joe Becerra, who worked the Durst case for many years. All right. Can you take me through the holes, getting the documents from Susie Giordano? Okay. So Susie Giordano originally, when Jarecki and Smurling were interviewing Durst, they, of course, wanted to get as much information as they could. So... They've sat down with Bob and they've interviewed him and gotten all kinds of great stuff. But, of course, Andrew's thinking, what else can I get? So he says to Bob, hey, Mark says to him, hey, listen, we'd like to get, do you have any documents? I have many documents. So, basically, they get Bob to say, listen, Susie Giordano has all my documents. And you can go look through and take whatever you want. So many of these documents, they're in approximately 70 boxes are privileged materials from Bob's lawyers, legal stuff, stuff that no one could ever use. But Bob not only says, go ahead and look at it, he tells Susie to give them whatever they want. So they go over to go look at the stuff, and of course, Susie doesn't really want to give it to him. So she literally ends up calling Bob, saying, you know, they want this stuff, and he's like, give them whatever they want. So that's what happens. They get a treasure trove of shit. Stuff that would never be allowed in court, except for now Bob has waived attorney-client privilege. Now, he's waived attorney-client privilege by having Susie look at the documents, and then he's waived it further by giving all the documents, authorizing them to be given to Jarecki and Smurling. So I find out about this in February of 2014, I believe, when I get an email from Mark that has the BD story. I think that's the first time I saw the BD story. And I get it. So I'm, of course, fascinated by this thing. In the meantime, shortly thereafter, there is a dateline that airs. And the dateline has the BD story. The defense thinks that I gave it to them. And, of course, I didn't do that. And I think that the defense gave it to dateline. Somehow they want to leak it. might have been 48 hours. So there's a big issue involving the defense where they're accusing me of having leaked it. And I have a great relationship with Chip. Chip knows my word. I say, Chip, it's not me. I thought it was you. No, it's not me. And then we end up realizing that the copy that I have is slightly different than the copy that was given, shown on TV. Just like different notes in handwriting, etc. So we will eventually discover that the... BD story was given 
with Bob's, not just permission, but at his insistence. So I find out about this. I now know about these boxes, but I don't want to get the boxes. I, I eventually know that I should be able to subpoena anything that Jarecki and Sperling has, I will should eventually be able to get if they're cooperative. Although, remember, unless they air it or use it, they don't have to give it to me. Now, they've already given me the BD story. So, in the end, you know, I know I can use that because they've given it to me and they can't invoke a shield for something they themselves have given to me. So, what does that mean? Well, I want to get a hold of those boxes. I don't know what's in them. A big concern that I have is that we've got all these boxes there, and I need to go through them. Well, unfortunately, if I try to get those boxes and Susie says no, there's going to be an issue with getting a warrant. Am I going to be able to do it? Probably not. It's going to be privileged, etc. So I don't do anything. The day that I interview Bob Durst in New Orleans, as soon as I get back to the hotel, I call Joey Becerra, and I tell Joey, Joey, I need you to go out today. It's Sunday. Go out to Susie's place. Do not interview her. Your your whole job is to get her to consensually give you the boxes. Get the boxes out of there. Get a signed consent. And that's what he does. So he gets a hold of the boxes. Once the boxes are gone, I send him back, and he goes back, and I think he does interviews. He and Eric Perry and another FBI agent, another New York State police officer, interview her, I think, three straight days. You know, they come back and they do interviews. And during these interviews, she lies. She basically says that she never sent Bob any money, you know, plays dumb about the money that's in the suitcase. Now, she doesn't know, but during the pendency of these interviews, not the first day, but I think the second day, by then, we've already recovered the suitcase in New Orleans with all the money. And she lies about it something that I end up impeaching her at the trial. So, fast forward, I eventually get these boxes out here, but it takes an incredible amount of time. So, what we do is, is we have the FBI digitizes, I believe they digitize the Giordano boxes for us. I might be wrong. They did Westchester and they did Galveston. I think they did those boxes. Eventually, we get them. We get the digital stuff. And at this point in time, the defense is making noises. They are trying to get the preliminary hearing Bob out here as quick as possible. And my concern is that I do not want anything going on. I certainly don't want a trial until I've had time to go through these boxes. Because what's going to happen if eventually I go through the boxes after he's been tried and acquitted, let's say, and there's some smoking gun confession in there? You know, people are going to go, what were you doing? So I ended up having a battle with my chain of command where I basically told them that if I couldn't get the defense to agree to delay Bob coming out here, and that was also dependent on what happened in Louisiana and what happened with the demand for trial, but that if I couldn't do that, then my plan was that once Bob pled on the Louisiana case, if that's what he did, so he would be pleading very quickly so he could immediately once he got to federal prison, demand a trial out here. Once he pled, my plan was to dismiss our case out here. And the idea was that I knew that he couldn't demand a trial until after he got to federal prison. So there would be a week, two-week delay between the time he entered his plea and the time and was sentenced to prison and the time he got there. So I knew 
that what I would do is if I couldn't delay this thing, couldn't get a written agreement, then as soon as he pled, I would dismiss my case. Now, once I dismiss the case, Bob is still in custody on the Louisiana case, and he can't demand a trial for charges that don't exist. There's also likely a situation, because he hasn't been arraigned out here, his lawyers probably won't get money from him for the case in California. So I'm not going to get into all the games that the defense played, that DeGarren and Chesnoff played, but um, they tried to double-cross me. I found out about it, and I went to my chain of command and said, this is what I'm going to do. And at the time, they didn't want me to do it. They told me, we're not going to let you do it. And I told them, well, you can do what you want, but I'll be writing a memo that's going to lay out all the reasons why I'm requesting that this happen. And if you deny it and this case goes south, you own it. So what I told them is, I will obey your orders and your decisions. I will not own them. You own them. And by the way, if you push this issue, and I wasn't shy about it, my position on this case very early, all the way up to the top of my office was, I'm handling this case. I will make every decision on this case relating to how it's presented. The DA has the right to say what the deal on the case is, whether it gets filed. But other than that, this is my case. If you don't like it, get someone else. So that was not met with a whole lot of appreciation up my chain. But they knew that I wasn't playing around, that I would do exactly as I said, and I wrote a memo that laid all this out. Now, I never had to do it because, meanwhile, I was able to tell the defense, hey, listen, either you're going to agree to this continuance, which you agreed to already, and then you tried to double-cross me with the U.S. attorneys, which I found out about. Can you go back to that and just clarify what the double-cross was and also what time period we're talking about at this moment? So this is between – the. After Bob got arrested, while he was in New Orleans, while they were figuring out what they were going to do with the case, I'm trying to get ready, and I'm telling my chain of command, hey, listen, these guys are going to try to have a quick prelim and a quick trial. And I'm being told, no, it's not going to happen. It never happens. I'm telling my chain, hey, listen, I'm not going to handle this case banking on the fact that, well, they're stupid and they won't do that. That's not how I roll. So basically... I am trying to get my case ready, and I now need a lot of time delayed because i got to go through all these boxes, which I'm just now getting. You know, I'm not going to do this case. Later on, have it come out that there was some explosive document in there. And what excuse would I have? Why didn't I dismiss the case to go through the evidence? He's in custody anyway. So, meantime, I'm negotiating with the defense. The defense mistakenly believed Chip and I had an arrangement. We would not lie to each other directly. That doesn't mean that we will tell everybody everything. Chip believed that he was working me and that I wanted a quick trial. I let Chip believe that. It was not true. So eventually, during the negotiations on the case in New Orleans, at one point in time, I end up getting contacted by Chip, and Chip wants me to basically send a letter to the defense which says that if they plead on this case, that I'm going to immediately bring Bob out for trial. And I have to tell Chip during this conversation, hey, listen, Chip, that's not what I'm going to do. And I don't want you making that representation to the other lawyers on your team because I'm going to do the opposite. Um, I'm not ready. If I have to, I can do the case, but I don't have to because you're in a bad position. If your client pleads in Louisiana, I'll immediately dismiss. He'll be stuck in prison, and I'll just refile before he gets out. 
if you don't plead and he fights it, then I'll just wait. But I'm not going to bring him out quickly. So we had an agreement, and Dick ended up trying to double-cross me on it by going to the U.S. attorney and trying to double-deal behind my back. Now, he didn't understand that I was on top of the situation, and I knew exactly what he was doing. So we had a conversation one day where I used very colorful language to explain to the defense team that I knew what they were up to, that the pressure they were feeling around their private parts was my hand, and that I wasn't playing, and they had till Friday to agree to give me a stipulation as to when Bob would come out, or if you plead him, I'll dismiss this case. So I ended up getting the stipulation, and that gave me the time. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I continue our conversation about Robert Durst's friend and Love Nest cohabitant, Susie Giordano, and then move on to discuss other witness testimonies in the Durst murder trial. Again, in the event that you would like to revisit the Galveston section of the trial that Lewin described in this episode, check out Season 2, Episode 10 of this Jury Duty podcast. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>